As we pick up again in Genesis, we find Jacob uh, still on the run. Jacob has been, well, he's gotten himself into a lot of trouble. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. He's been searching after all kinds of things, grasping for all kinds of things, for wealth, for approval. He had a pretty significant run-in with God on the way, and yet that didn't fix everything, as we will quickly find out. And as we get into chapter 29, Jacob arrives uh, near where he knows he has relatives, and he goes to a well to get water and, uh, and meets two young women there, uh, who are, of course, the daughters of his uncle. And, uh, and then he comes to his uncle's house, and that's where we'll pick up uh, in verse 15. As soon as Laban, that's his uncle, heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing, tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is complete. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week with the, of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. 
Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she again conceived and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, that she ceased bearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this word is given to us so that we can understand the Lord more than anything else. So let's ask that he illuminate it. Father, we do pray by your spirit that you would make what we can learn clear to us here, not simply about these characters, but more importantly about your character, that we would understand more deeply your love for us in the work of Jesus on our behalf. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, what will people do for love? They'll do a lot of things, right? We write songs about it. All you need is love, after all. Uh, we write poems. We write novels. We make movies. We even take movies that are seemingly about other things and just sort of jam a love story into the middle of them just for the, you know, just for the heck of it, right? We love love stories. We want to tell them all the time. And people will do all kinds of things. We'll uproot our lives, move halfway across the country if we need to. We will sometimes even shipwreck our lives if we think we finally found something we were always longing for. People make huge decisions, wise and foolish, good and bad, for love. At the beginning of her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Rebecca Pippert says this. She says, people have two things in common. We all want to be happy, and we all want to be loved. We cannot understand why something so simple should be so difficult. Jacob's longed for a lot of things, and his heart has turned toward love. And we learn about two lies and one truth in this passage. The first lie is that love will fulfill you. I mean, we mean romantic love primarily here. And you see how this plays out. Jacob shows up, and uh, he falls in love with Rachel. About all we know about Rachel is that she's beautiful. She speaks only a couple of times, even in the rest of Genesis. Doesn't mean she's shallow, I have no idea. She just doesn't speak a lot as a character but he is infatuated with her. And you know that Jacob has lost it a little bit by the way that he goes about dealing with this. So it comes up because Laban says, look, you're, you're, you're my family member. You're living in this household. You shouldn't just work for free. And this was what he offers. And he offers seven years as a servant Now, he doesn't obviously have a lot of money on him. He can't offer a bride price, all these other things that were typical in that day. So it's not that seven years would be necessarily outrageous, but he just begins by, by an over-the-top offer. And, of course, we'll talk about Laban in a minute, but Laban sees immediately what he's dealing with. And so he offers that. And we're told it seemed but a few days 
You know, that's in verse 20, right? But a few days to him. But of course, by the end of it, in the very next verse in 21, uh, you can tell how obsessed he is by how indiscreet he really is with his father-in-law to be. Uh, Jacob has lost his mind over love. He is convinced that this is all he really needs. And then, of course, you know, the wedding comes, and in the, in the ancient world, these were big affairs. When someone was getting married, it was multiple days. There was a lot of drinking. Uh, the bride, of course, would have been veiled throughout the whole thing. And so, you know, this strange scenario plays out where Laban switches the two daughters. And uh, which seems, you know, again, on the one hand, a little unbelievable. But when you start to think about how all of this would play out, maybe not so hard to understand. And then the narrative, in a very terse, verse 25, way, tells us everything about Jacob. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. And you can just imagine how he felt like his world was just crumbling in. And Laban doesn't, by the way, hesitate to twist the knife because his comment can't help but be cutting to Jacob. It is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. If you recall Jacob's story, he's the younger who has taken everything from his firstborn brother. And then Jacob, he, he accepts another set of crazy terms, right? He has, been, he has actually been lied to and tricked. And then he accepts to work another seven years just to have Rachel. And Jacob is making, he's making bad decision on bad decision here. It's starting to compound, right? So now he is going to have to serve Laban, be a servant in the household of Laban for 14 years. He is going to inevitably bring strife into his own family. Uh, It's one of the weird things, by the way, as a kind of a side here, Polygamy does come up in the Bible from time to time, but it always, always has bad consequences. It wasn't unknown in the ancient world, but whenever we see it in Scripture, it's, it always turns out badly. It always has bad consequences. Little wonder, right? But Jacob, you know, he's making his decisions. The heart wants what it wants, I guess, as Emily Dickinson famously said. Well, what we get then is a picture of a man who thinks that love is going to solve his problems. That if he gets what he wants, he will finally be fulfilled. He is willing to do all sorts of things. He is willing to work 14 years for her. He is willing 
to make foolish, foolish decisions because he thinks this will fulfill him. This will make everything better. And the reality is it doesn't. And look, I mean, when we talk about love, and again, mostly we're talking about, thinking about romantic love here this morning, it is powerful. It is deep. It is meaningful. It, it is, it's, it's really, it goes back to creation, doesn't it? Uh, I've done a few weddings recently, and at the beginning of each wedding, I, I, I summarize all of this and saying the covenant of marriage was instituted by God of creation, regulated by his commandments, blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and is to be held in honor among all, right? I mean, it, it was there from the beginning. It's not, that it's, it's not that it's bad. It's not that it's pointless. It's not that it isn't good. It's not that it isn't fulfilling in some sense, but it isn't everything. You know, I, I think on the one hand, one, the thing that we often fear when we're young is loneliness. But on the other hand, some of the loneliest people you'll ever meet are those that are in a bad marriage. It if we think love will fulfill us, we are going to be wrong. If we think it's ultimately the thing that will give us meaning. You see, it isn't that marriage is bad. It isn't that love is bad. It's that we put a tremendous weight on it. In fact, the modern world, more than any other society ever in all of human history, has put and a massive amount of weight on it. It is the thing that we think will give us the most fulfillment in life. That's why we write so many songs about it. It's not that people didn't think about love as being important, but we have considered it ultimate. (laughs) Uh, It is the thing that we dream about. It's the thing we most fear that we might have a life without. But that is a tremendous weight to put on another person. Let's be honest about that, right? If you think your value, your sense of final purpose is put on, a, is a, you know, rest in another person and finding another person, that is crushing. It will inherently be brittle. Because the gap, in those of you who are married or have been married, you know this gap becomes pretty clear pretty quickly. The gap between the ideal and the real, it opens up pretty quickly on you, doesn't it? Because no one's perfect. That however great and wonderful marriage can be, however good it was made to be, 
it's still two sinners marrying one another. <laughs> and inevitably the gap opens. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller in their book on marriage, they, they summarize how we tend to approach things. They say, uh, if your desire is for a spouse who will not demand a lot of change from you, then you are also looking for a spouse who is almost completely pulled together. Someone very low maintenance without much in the way of personal problems. You're looking for someone who will not require or demand significant change. You are searching, therefore, for an ideal person. Happy, healthy, interesting, content with life. Never before in, hum- in history has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they are seeking in a spouse. But notice this. They go on a little bit later to say this. In our society, talking about how pessimistic we also are about the prospects of marriage. In our society, we are too pessimistic because we are too idealistic about what we want in a marriage partner. Our idealism about it, our desire to have somebody who is going to perfectly fulfill me is actually the very thing that erodes it. That inevitably will make us more unhappy with the actual relationships we actually have with actual people. Jacob is buying in, and we we've keep saying this about him, that he is such a modern character. And in this story, he proves it once again by buying that lie that love will fulfill you. There's another lie. It's related to that one. That love will get you what you want. Now, Laban, we've already mentioned him (laughs) briefly. He's on to this whole thing from the get-go, isn't he? Jacob, who loves a good scheme, has met his match with Laban. Laban recognizes what Jacob wants, what, that, he, that he is willing to give everything. So Laban is willing to take just about everything. He is savvy from the initial deal back in verse 19. He, of course, realizes that he can pull something off in verse 23 by switching Rachel and Leah. He like we already said, sticks it to Jacob by pointing out the business about the firstborn. And he takes advantage of Jacob's insatiable love in verses 26 and 27 to get him another seven years out of him. If you think you have family problems, nothing is new under the sun, I guess. But Leah, you can't help but feel like Leah is a bit of a tragic character in the whole thing. Uh, (laughs) We're told that she has weak eyes, which is obviously some sort of euphemism for saying she's not that pretty. Uh, And you can only, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think about how that felt, having, you know, the drop-dead gorgeous younger sister in her house. Um, 
during the seven years that Jacob is serving Laban, apparently nobody comes knocking, interested in her. She ends up then a pawn in the schemes of her father and is, you know, largely all but forgotten by her husband. She ends up in a loveless, polygamous marriage in which her sister is her rival. There's a couple of uh, paper clips up here. One stuck to my hand. Uh, that's strange. <laughs> you, get the, you get the idea, don't you? I can't imagine what is going through her heart and her mind over and over and over again, except that she starts to tell us. Because she's the one that starts having babies. And notice with each of these names what we learn. First, she names the first son Reuben, which just means, look, a son. <laughs> look, Jacob. <laughs> and of course, you already probably know this too, in the ancient world, and still in many societies even today, to have a son is really what people want, an heir. Um, I'm not saying that's fair. I'm just saying that's how it is, right? And she says, she says overtly in verse 32, now my husband will love me, giving him a firstborn son. It obviously doesn't work. And then she has another, and she, na- she names him Simeon, which means heard, listened to, Uh, But it's not that she's not so much emphasizing that God has heard her, but has heard specifically that her husband doesn't love her. And then she names the third son Levi, which means attached, right? And she's saying, now after three sons, he'll be attached to me, right? And apparently he's not. She... She wants something out of this relationship. She wants his attention. And she thinks that the sex and reproduction that comes from that sex will get that attention. And that is how so many of our relationships are. And maybe in particular, and we'll just stay focused on romance here, we want something out of it. It may not just be fulfillment in the abstract, but we want something from this other person. And there's really only two outcomes to that. One of them is that at some point, that person stops delivering on what we want from them. They inevitably will not be able to do that. I mean, you think about breakups, right? And especially the younger you are, the pettier the reasons for breaking up seem to be. Uh, They're just not that interesting anymore. But even, you know, and, and we can criticize people when we think that they are 
you know, that they're tired of a relationship because of the most obvious things, say money or status or other things, if they don't seem to be getting what they want. We respect the more abstract things, right? The sort of things we say we're looking for, a sense of humor, how they make me feel. But of course, those things don't last. The guy who was so funny when you were first dating, after 15 years of marriage, his jokes are pretty lame. And they've just become dad jokes. And you get pretty tired of that sometimes. Some people don't get tired of dad jokes. Some people follow Instagram accounts just about dad jokes. The feelings change, right? Because what happens over time? That person, by their experiences, they change. You change from your experiences. All of these things change over time. And at some point, most people stop delivering on the things that you wanted out of them. That's one option. The other possible outcome is that they start to realize that you're only in this for what you're getting out of it. And no one really wants to be in that situation. No one wants to be loved just because they have money or they have status. No one wants to have to feel like they're always putting on a performance for you. Uh, this is actually the great lie that we tell ourselves as a culture about sex, right? Is, is we, we think it's an expression of love, but it's really a performance. You know, outside of marriage, of course, it inherently is. It's about getting what you want or convincing the other person that you, that they should want you. I mean, even in marriage, it can get twisted that way. But we think of it as this thing to get what we want out of it. And we may convince ourselves that that's love, but uh, of course what we miss in any way in which we think that love is about getting things is we miss that love is actually about self-giving. This is why when you take of your vows, by the way, when you get married, right, it's not about who you are now. And sometimes when people write their own vows, that's what you get, right? You, in fact, inevitably, when they write their own vows, you get a lot of how they feel that day, which is great. But really, the more interesting question is, what are you going to do down the road? What are you going to do when the go gets tough? I mean, I realize we're putting our finger on some pretty difficult issues here. Whether you're still pretty young and just figuring out what on earth you think love means. Whether you're newlywed. <laughs> whether you've been at it for a long time. Whether you're facing the challenges of age. 
these issues don't die out. They just change shape. And of course, none of us are really perfect in that, are we? But there is one truth that we need. That the love we need is from God, not from anyone else. You notice what Leah says at the very end of this passage. She names her son Judah, which means praise. And her tune changes too, doesn't it? This time, I will praise the Lord. I'm going to stop worrying about getting Jacob to change his mind. And I will praise the Lord. It is a change in focus. Now, it is not complete and perfect. What actually follows in the next chapter is a lot of drama within this household. Uh, one of the reasons, you might have even noticed a little, verses, uh, what is it, 24 and 29 have two strange parenthetical comments about the, the servant women. Well, what happens is that because Leah has four sons, Rachel decides, again, in keeping with ancient Near Eastern custom, to send her servant in with Jacob, and then she starts having kids, and then Leah sends her servant in, and it's a whole thing. A mess. Uh, And things go on, and then Leah does, again, want to have kids later on. It covered, chapter 30 obviously covers many years, though we're not told how long. It's not permanent, it's not complete, but it is a step forward. Leah is no longer obsessed with trying to get love out of Jacob. Leah realizes that it is actually the Lord who has provided her with those sons. It's the Lord that's given her that. And it really is ultimately the Lord that will provide what she needs. That her marriage is not going to provide it. And the truth of the matter is, even if her marriage was a great marriage, it would still not provide everything she needed. Because what she really needs is the love of God. And this is true. All the great things that we long for in life, they're only a glimpse of the things that we really, really need. The deeper longings that we have. One of the great reflections of the, on this is uh, Augustine of Hippo's Confessions. If you've never read that book, it's well worth your time. Because it is all about how he looked for something to fulfill him in all kinds of places. Of course, romance was one of those. <laughs> but he finally realized that what he was restless for was God. C.S. Lewis puts it similarly in, uh, in The Weight of Glory. He says, the books or the music in which we thought beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. 
You could say the same thing, I suppose, about romance. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, beauty, the beauty, the memory of the past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. I'm not saying that that simplifies every question you've got on who you should date. I'm not saying that resolves all the questions that your marriage faces. Instead, though, it changes the way you ask those questions. Because what you don't need is that person to be your complete fulfillment. And that lowers the stakes. And it helps you confront the challenges that are really there. Because you've got something else. You have the love of God. And last spring, we, we touched on this actually a little bit when we were in John 4. But do you remember the moment Jesus shows up at a well and asks a woman to draw water for him? The Samaritan woman at the well. And you can't mistake it. You can't mistake what's going on because when that happens in the Bible, love is in the air. That's the kind of scene it is. A man meets a woman at a well. That's the old story. But Jesus isn't after romance, though he is after her heart. And the talk ends up actually turning to romance. Do you remember that? Jesus asks her, where is your husband? And what comes out that he obviously already knew <laughs> was that she had been looking for love over and over again and not finding it. And Jesus tells her about the water. This is what he says. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. And he's obviously not talking about water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, Jesus pursued her, not for romance, but for something that was even greater, the love of God, the kind of love that puts even romance in its place, that puts even the deep longing for that kind of connection into perspective. The kind of love that can only satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And that can reorder the loves that we have for other things. That is the love of God. And notice how Jesus' love really works. It's self-giving. Unlike our selfish love that wants to take. Unlike our selfish love that wants to put the weight of being 
onto another person. Jesus gives his life. Jesus lets himself be crushed for us. Isn't that a strange thing? The Bible does begin with romance. It starts with a marriage right near the beginning. But it also ends with one. But it's not my marriage. It's not your marriage. It's the marriage of Jesus to his bride, the church. As one author puts it, the Bible does not teach that there will be no marriage in heaven. Rather, it teaches that there will be one marriage in heaven, between Christ and his bride, the church. What Jacob doesn't see, what we often miss, is we think that if we run after all these other things, we will finally be fulfilled. And the truth is, we never will be. And they may be good things. Love, romance, is a great thing. It's a beautiful thing. But if you think that will give you meaning, it will not. It will let you down over and over and over and over again. And over again. And again and again. But the one love that never fails is the love that has been around since creation. That has been around since before creation. That set creation into motion. And the love that even before creation knew what it would cost to love us is the one love that will fulfill the love of God for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love knows no ends, that it never fails, that the love of Jesus for us has given us everything that we need. So often, Lord, we think it would be nice. It'd be nice to have that kind of experience. But the thing I can have is found around here. Yet, Lord, there is no other truth worth realizing than your love is what really fulfills. And all of these other things cannot possibly bear the weight of it. So, Lord, we do pray that you would impress on us the love that never fails and that it would reorder all these other loves that we have, Lord. We ask all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.